0: Hello and welcome to the Life is Story podcast. I'm Josh Olds and today my guest is Greg Lanier, author of Is Jesus Truly God? How the Bible Teaches the Divinity of Christ. Uh, Dr. Lanier, welcome to the program.
1: Thank you. Good, good to be here.
0: Now I, I guess I want to begin with the question of just why you felt compelled to write this book. Uh, this is a fairly, I mean this is this is a foundational, a crucial Christian doctrine You'd kind of think that what we've needed to say on the topic has already been said in so many different ways. So what was the impetus for you to sit down and say, we really still need to be talking about this. We still need to say what you say in this book.
1: Sure. That's a great question. And it's been interesting. Uh, I've I've been on a bit bit of a social media exile for a, a year or so. Uh, just because it's been good for my soul. But um, as I've come out of hiding and, and folks have tweeted about uh, the book, there's been kind of a a, a slightly funny response of many folks in, in the Christian church that's basically just yes, i.e. the answer to the question posed in the book's title, which I didn't pick, of course, um, is is yes. You know, let's move on. Obviously, the answer to that is yes. And so um, in some respects, you could rightly say, okay, haven't we covered this ground? This is sort of a central Christian Doctrine and so why do we need a book on this topic? Um, the reason why uh, a couple of different reasons why I wanted to write the book and felt the need for it. Um, and I, and I kick off the book with just a real quick, uh, vague, you know, identities have been changed to protect the innocent kind of story of. Interviewing someone um, for a ministry position, being part of an interview, and asking them the question, you know, where would you go in Scripture to prove that Jesus is fully divine the way that the creeds confess him to be? And this particular individual who uh, knew a lot uh, could only sort of come up with John 1. And it's interesting, just a couple of days ago, I was in a uh, Presbytery meeting for our Presbyterian. That was That question was asked to one of the ordination candidates, same kind of thing. They said, John 1, Hebrews 1, and they sort of moved on. And I wanted to raise my hand and say I wrote a book on this. Um, and uh, and so th- even though we know it to be true because the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed in particular tell us that it is true that Jesus is fully divine in, in in a big sense, not just like he is, you know, a Greco-Roman demigod like Hercules or something like that. We know it to be true, but I found not only in pastoral ministry but also even in academic ministry with students who've done a lot of reading that many of them actually struggle not most of them, struggle to actually articulate why they think Scripture says this, not just that we do believe it's true because the creeds tell us to, but actually that Scripture itself gives us more than just John 1, although John 1 is, of course, a fantastic place to go. And um, we've had a lot of debates over the past few years on the systematic theology side of the question, um, and there's been a whole bunch of dust-ups over Trinity stuff over the past few years, but there hasn't been a lot of lay-level work proving it from Scripture, not just from the Nicene Creed or Athanasius or Church Fathers. And so I wanted to kind of hit that um, uh, gap, at least that I perceived, in more a lay-level audience because there's been a whole lot of good stuff that's been done over the past two decades on the topic, but it has mainly been in journals and in academic monographs. And so I felt like time to distill that down to something that my mom would read. So okay.
0: It's such a foundational topic, and I think this is a tr- this is true for a lot of the like foundations of the faith, uh, kind of doctrines. Is that it, especially if you grew up in the church, you learn these doctrines at such an early stage of life. You know, this is something that right. you teach. G- Jesus is God. It's something that you teach your you know two year old, three three year old, four year old. You know, this is the basic basic Sunday school. Activities and what I have found as a pastor, and um, you know what kind of what I've had to deal with is that with those doctrines that we learn so early in life, if you grew up in the church, you never go back and relearn them at a level that is appropriate for a teenager or a young adult or a senior set. You know, it, it, yep. it, that those Sunday school doctrines stay at the children's Sunday school level. And that's unfortunate because it means that the foundations of our faith then are really based on an immaturity that was appropriate at the time, but those foundations never grew with us. So
1: You could say the same thing about why do we have so many books about the gospel – yeah. It's like, don't don't we know what the gospel is? Like, well, you might have learned, you know, Jesus died for your sins or something as a kid, but like actually articulating it robustly as an adult is something that we often just assume as opposed to actually do. And so it's, it's the reason why there's a thousand books out there with gospel in the title. Same thing. It's like, haven't we haven't we crossed these? Well, yeah, we have. But uh, but people actually don't know. <laughs> they don't really know how to defend the idea. So
0: mm-hmm. same kind of thing there. Yeah. And actually, when I was kind of um uh, researching studying f- for this interview i came across a, a Barna poll and th- this uh, this poll wasn't just didn't just interview christians but also non-christians as well and found that that in the united states that it was only only 56% of people stated that they believed that jesus was god um uh, mm-hmm. you know so so it was even within this is people who believed in historical jesus even if some of them who confessed you know christianity as their faith or at least culturally believed in christianity to be their faith Uh, but had come away from that thinking he's a great moral teacher uh he was a the leader or the founder of this faith uh we don't know that he was god so this does it does still tell us that at least in terms of larger society outside the faith among those who are just culturally Christian, there is still this need to really strongly proclaim, hey, Jesus is is God himself.
1: Yeah. And there's a big apologetic side as well. You know, if you look at Mainly Islam, but if you also look at Jehovah's Witnesses or even Mormonism, which has kind of a strange understanding of divination and that kind of thing, but certainly with Islam, you know, one of their pillars in how they approach Christianity is the denial of the divine sonship of Jesus, and so with the billion plus Muslims, uh, you know, that's a big that's a big dividing line <laughs> to overcome um, apologetically. So
0: yeah, so through through your book, uh, you kind of develop six different threads that make this compelling overall robust case for the divinity of christ so uh the first one of those is has to do with the preexistence of jesus the second member of the trinity can you can you talk to me a little bit about that and w- why you began there
1: sure yeah and the six threads are basically trying to boil things down to something that can be understood and remembered and help folks sort of read all of their Bible from this perspective and not just like, oh, John 1, 1 through 3, and that's all we need. Um, and so begin with preexistence uh, because that begins in eternity past. And so uh, you know preexistence as a doctrine is the the idea or the belief that uh, Jesus Christ as a divine person uh, didn't just become divine whenever he was born or uh, particularly doesn't become sort of get promoted to the varsity team uh, upon his ascension, which is a very common view, uh, both within the academy as well as the church, um, that he was just a man and uh, somehow got uh, granted divine status by virtue of his resurrection and ascension. So pre-existence sort of skewers that and says, no, for him to actually be fully divine, uh, And like God, as we confess him to be, he has to always have been God, uh, because that's the definition of of what we mean. Not what a Greco-Roman would mean, but what what we today, you know, as confessing Orthodox Christians, and in fact, what Jews would have believed as well um, in the in the ancient world. You have to be eternally divine. And so pre-existence, that chapter traces through what are the signs in the New Testament? And then also, what are some of the signs in the Old Testament? Uh, whereby we see the second person of the triune God appear, certainly in the shadows in the Old Testament, but it's definitely there. And I'll look at a few examples. Uh, but then, where do we see it articulated in the New Testament, in the Gospels, and in Paul, and so forth? Um, and the, the real upshot of that discussion is to demonstrate that Jesus Christ is fully divine through and through. He doesn't. He's not just the God of the New Testament, so to speak. He's the God of all of history um, and and that's a very, very important claim. Uh, that has a lot of implications in terms of how we how we understand the Old Testament, uh how we understand how to preach Jesus from the Old Testament, not just the Old Testament pointing forward to Jesus, but Christ actually being active in the Old Testament. What does that mean so uh, those are some of the things I get into in that chapter.
0: Mm-hmm. It speaks a lot to the continuity of the covenants on how you interpret this because if you really believe that like okay, there is no evidence. Like if if you take the the tactic that well Jesus is Jesus is New Testament uh and you right. divorce him completely from the Old Testament which I think is a common thing for for like lay level people to think uh just because you know the name obviously the name Jesus does not appear uh in the Old Testament as such um so if you really take that divine that that uh that disconnect between the Old Testament and the New Testament. You know, I, I've heard so often, oh, "We're a New Testament church,"
1: and right.
0: that, like, yes, uh, true, but that that disconnect from the Old Testament really means that there's this whole realm of tradition and theology and liturgy, and uh, like, that you're, you're you're taking out most of Scripture. Uh, When you when you say that. And so understanding how Christ relates to this old covenant, I think, is supremely, supremely important in how we then develop what we think of Christ in the new covenant.
1: And, uh, you know, I I pull that thread even further in the third chapter, which is how the New Testament authors uh, articulate the deity of Jesus. Through the Old Testament, like explicitly, as opposed to sort of this pre-existence was sort of in the shadows. And, you know, when folks say, oh, we're New Testament Christians, what I find so odd about that or the whole idea of unhitching from the Old Testament and all that kind of stuff is, um, which is, you know, neo-Marcionism just with uh, new clothing. Um what I find so weird about that is that Paul certainly and Jesus absolutely. And Luke and Matthew, they would all look at you funny and be and and ask, what are you talking about? Because when they want to actually describe in their clearest way, that Jesus is not just a Messiah from the line of David, although he is that, and that's a big claim, but even more than that, that he is the true God of Israel, one God, one Lord, the place they go to do that is actually the old Testament. Um, and so to say that we're New Testament Christians who love Jesus is just completely incoherent if you actually look at the New Testament, which is always going back to the Old Testament to describe why we worship Jesus. And so just – yeah, it's very strange, but I think you're right that that is a very common uh, position that many hold, maybe with even out without re- recognizing the inconsistencies.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the – I think one of the most common texts when, – when people do look for Jesus in the Old Testament – uh, some of the most common texts that they that they use are the Angel of the Lord passages, where uh, there's the Old Testament character who's referred to as Angel of the Lord, and those are often mm-hmm. seen as theophanies or Christophanies. Uh, I, I know that has some in in scholarly circles. There's some debate over who that is supposed to be. Do you do you take the 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 position in this book that is Christ, or how do you how do you look at those passages in particular?
1: Yeah, and there is a sort of longstanding unresolved debate, uh, even within sort of broadly conservative, orthodox, you know, theologically conservative circles, on that. And so I, I try to avoid being, you know, taking a hard stance because I think there are some challenges to the idea, especially because the this angel, the Lord figure, uh, there's different ways this person, this angelic person is described and, and so forth. Um, but where I land on that in the book is, is actually starting from the uh, epistle of Jude and sort of working its way backwards and somewhat famously in Jude, Jude 5 in particular, he describes and taking Jude to be the half brother of Jesus so to speak. Um he describes how uh the Israelites were delivered out of Egypt and uh there's a major textual issue there that has been long debated whether he says God delivered them out of Egypt, the Lord delivered them out of Egypt or uh Jesus delivered them out of Egypt. And English translations are kind of all over the board in terms of which they think is the best reading, but um I think for very good reason, the most recent uh, revision to the Greek New Testament that most, most Bible translators use now supports Jesus as the most plausible original reading. Um, and so if that's the case, what that means is Jude is saying that, that Jesus in his preexistence, is the one who leads the Israelites out of captivity. And he goes on to make other high claims about Jesus as well. And so what I find interesting about that is if you look at the Exodus account 14 and following, it's the Angel Lord or Yahweh Himself, depending on which chapter you're looking at and how it's articulated, that uh, is the one who delivers them out of Egypt. And so for me, I start there and I say, okay, that's pretty interesting evidence that, at least in that construct of the Exodus, we could look at this Angel Lord and and have a I think you have a pretty strong exegetical case that it could be, um, looking for or sort of a a pre New Testament pre-incarnate glimpse of the second person. Um, And so I'm pretty optimistic in terms of, well, optimistic is probably the wrong word. I'm, I'm, I lean in the direction of understanding some of these angel Lord appearances as a early glimpse of a plurality within the one true God of Israel, that God is sort of showing his cards that there's actually a plural unity. Because whenever you see the angel Lord described in the old Testament, so often, he's not only sort of speaking on behalf of God, but it's almost indistinguishable at times as to which is the angel and which is Yahweh himself and the answer is both often and so it's quite fascinating so I, I sort of lean in that direction but also respect that there's some there's some counter arguments as well but that's sort of where I landed in the book uh, a a tentative yes without pushing it too hard but I do think we have some some positive evidence for it in the New Testament
0: yeah I think that's where I've ended up as well it, it's such a um I think because it's it's such a clear uh, – I'm trying to figure out how to best word this. Um, it's such a sensational thing if this is Jesus, second member of the Trinity, that it seems to be the argument that is used in lay-level circles. Um, right. And then when, there, when we kind of get into, well – there's this academic debate and we can lean that way, but also there's good arguments this way. It can be, I don't know, the pushback that I personally have received to it when, when kind of talking about these passages with other people is, is sort of almost a disdain for the academic process uh, to be Mm -hmm. like, well, just, just like it, it either like it either needs to be settled one way or the other. And it's very difficult I think for some Christians to exist in this 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 um, idea that there might be some debate on a topic or there might be some arguments for arguments against how do we handle because a lot of what we're doing especially especially when we get into the Old Testament and we're talking about whether it's Jesus or the Holy Spirit where where those persons are more I don't know, subdued is the right right uh, way to describe that, um, but they're they're obviously not as pronounced or as open as in the New Testament. How do we deal and teach that? Do you think is the best way of teaching that yeah. um, understanding, like getting people to understand that there are, there's areas in which we can say we lean this way, but you know, I'm open to evidence that will change my mind.
1: Sure. Yeah, and, and that, that latter point is obviously a huge one pastorally. That I don't know if I could solve that briefly. Uh, but in terms of the, you know, how do you how do you make a compelling case, but also for the preexistence of Jesus in the Old Testament without misleading people or potentially ignoring uh, evidence and so forth? Uh, what I what I do personally, but also what I try to do as briefly as I can in the book, is A, um, build a cumulative case for it. And so it's not just the angel of the Lord. Uh, it's not just spirit hovering over the face of the waters in Genesis 1 as a Trinitarian uh, evidence. It's a lot of evidence um, that when you put it all together, and so one other, a couple of other examples I get into, A, um, in John 12, he famously quotes, uh, from Isaiah chapter 6, which, of course, is this great throne room vision. And then John, sort of as an aside, says, you know, uh, Isaiah wrote these things because he saw him and wrote of him. And the him in the passage is just Jesus. It's, that's unequivocal uh, in John 12. And so John is saying that what Isaiah saw in his grand throne room vision, Isaiah 6, somehow incorporates the second person. He doesn't sort of unravel it all for us. He's sort of already done that in chapter one. Uh, and so that's one example. When you see the the glory of God in the temple, somehow John, the, the apostle, sees that as in- inclusive of the second person, Jesus, or Christ, however you say it. So that's one example. Ezekiel one's another example. The way G- uh, Jesus reads himself into Psalm 110 uh, as the recipient of a speech of God, the father, um, Speaking to his son, sit at, my right, right, sit at my right hand. That's another example. And so, when you actually add it all up, the Jude 5 passage, you have clear, I think, indisputable evidence that the New Testament authors see Jesus as pre-existent in the life of Israel. And once you've established that, then I think the second pillar of the argument is: okay, in light of the the incarnation, in light of what Jesus does hermeneutically to us, think of Luke 24 to open our minds to read the Old Testament in its fullness as opposed to the prophets, you know, first Peter, second Peter, the prophets, sort of searching and inquiring what these things were about. Well, now we know what they're about because the fullness has come that enables us to go back and read the Old Testament with sort of different eyes. say, Oh, now I see that we, as Christians, we can read it and see the fullness because the fullness has come. Uh, and so that's the sort of two prong angle, a build a cumulative case, be recognized that we can read it as Christians in light of Jesus, and that actually does transform our understanding of what was already there and put there by God, just not fully fleshed because the word hadn't been truly fleshed. Does that, that make sense?
0: Right, yeah, yeah, I think so. Uh, let's let's we move on into the And that the enables you to about... kind of
1: navigate individual pretexts mm-hmm. and yeah. to put them into a bigger picture.
0: Yeah, for sure, for sure. Uh, we move into the New Testament, and obviously the person of Jesus is the central character of the New Testament, I a mean, central character of Scripture. But named specifically, we think of the Gospels, and and you know everything that comes after that is a continuation of the ministry of Jesus through the apostles, and uh, you know into today. Um, but even then, there is I think, especially in an argument you know, apologetically, uh, and you kind of mentioned uh, among the Muslim world, we'll take Jesus as being a great prophet, but not this, not uh, divine. Um, Mormonism kind of has a unique take on uh, on on Jesus and exactly who he is. Um, so. I, I feel like most Christians, if you if you told them, "Does the New Testament say Jesus is God?" they're probably going to say, "Yes." But when it comes to actually, fifty
1: six percent of them, <laughs> or at least fifty six percent of them yeah. would, yes.
0: Yeah. Um, you, you know, I, I but I think that the knee jerk for people who are in church is to say yes, but not really be able to, to, to talk about why. Uh, you know, otherwise, mm-hmm. except for maybe there's John one, Hebrews one, passages um i want to kind of take it from the other way around and say you know what other than the need for for other religions to to obviously not want to see jesus as god uh but still have to grapple with his teachings because everyone has to do that regardless um how could you how could you make an argument from the new testament that jesus is not god let's let's start from there and kind of work backwards
1: uh, so in other words, what, what would be the most – what are the most common uh, defeaters of the position that Jesus is fully divine? Is that what you're asking? Yeah. Um, I mean, most most folks uh, – well, it's, it probably depends on who is asking the question. Um, to, you mentioned Islam or Muslims. Generally speaking, the, the crux of their denial of the full deity of Jesus, even saying things like say not three and, and sort of a – denial of the Trinity itself stems from um, a a misunderstanding of what the Trinitarian doctrine is famously in the Quran. Uh, The the one time it sort of articulated what the Christian Trinitarian or three position is, is that it's God, the father, Jesus, the son, and Mary. And so that's obviously already off on the wrong foot. Um, But the real issue is there's not a real clear way for someone who is Muslim to uh, get their heads around without a lot of patient teaching what we mean by divine sonship to begin with, because from their perspective, Allah is, it can and is and only can be sort of a monad, a a one undifferentiated entity. And so for there to be any kind of sonship, it has to be human type sonship in terms of he impregnated Mary. And so they define that, and justly so, they would find that idea that God somehow impregnated Mary to be utterly repulsive. And and I would agree with that, but that's not what the Krishna teaching is. And so they would look at all of the birth narratives and all the sonship texts and say, that's just completely ridiculous. Um, and so I think you'd have to handle that and say, no, that's not what we mean. It's a very different kind of sonship. This uh, the overshadowing of the Holy Spirit is not what you think it is. And so that's that's sort of one category. But the, the more at least sort of within the mainline Christian church, the most common arguments against the deity of Jesus uh would be the fact that he doesn't sort of go around broadcasting it. And he's generally just a – they would argue he's, he's simply a, uh, a wise teacher and maybe a bit of a political revolutionary, something like that. Um And so to handle that, you have to go through patiently and say, okay, well, here's some places where we do see him very clearly pointing at his divine sonship, just not maybe in the terms that you are listening for. Uh, and then some of the passages where, uh, whether it's 1 Corinthians um, 15, where Jesus submits to the Father at the end of time, or even in John uh, passages where he says, you know, I've come to do my Father's will, not my own will. A lot of folks will say, OK, that shows you that Jesus sees himself as number two uh, underneath God as opposed to equal to God. Um, of course, the irony of that strategy is that those very same writers, particularly Paul and John, in many respects, you say they do the most, that they're the most blatant in arguing for the full co-equality, co-essential deity of Jesus as well. And so you just have to say, OK, let's we have to understand the distinction here between the essence of, of Christ as fully divine, but his expression as a human, as the Messiah, is in submission to the Father. and, and Orthodox Christianity has always held those two in balance, as opposed to picking one. Uh, and so that that seems to me the biggest counter argument is trying to pick one and say, no, he's only a human prophet. That's it. And like, well, he is a human prophet, but it doesn't stop there. And so, sort of opening people's eyes to all the other evidence that is easy to squeeze out of the mold is sort of the name of the game.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think a common argument that I hear from from people who are not Christians is is sort of that the divinity of jesus developed that if you look at the earliest text the earliest gospels and usually mark is the one that they that they pinpoint as the early as earliest um you see less evidence or less indication that jesus is divine but then by the time you get to john which is written much later and usually their definition of much later is a whole lot later than most conservative uh theologians and scholars would say yeah. Um, you've, you've had this, this idea of, of the divinity of Jesus developed, and then you see that come into full fruition, uh, with the Council of Nicaea, uh, so they, they would kind of take the argument that Christ's divinity developed through the canon of the New Testament and then into early church
1: history. Sure, uh, yeah.
0: How would you, how would you answer that contention?
1: Sure, and that, that's the... I guess most recently popularized by Bart Ehrman and his How Jesus Became God, but it, you know, there's plenty of predecessors for that idea. Um, and, and in my, one of the, one of the decisions I had to make in my own book is to avoid, I wanted to sort of, because I, again, I was writing for a lay audience and questions of reconstructing the historical Jesus and the earliest strata of historical evidence and all that kind of stuff, frankly, is just confusing and boring to the average lay person. Um, and so I actually, Behind this, what I what I actually try to do is not talk about that while still dealing with the issue by giving evidence from across the New Testament, including what we might call the earliest strata, whether that's Q or Mark or pre-Pauline tradition. So I, I, it's there. I just don't make it front and center because I don't want to distract folks. But um the way I handle that is sort of twofold. And the way most one of the reasons why I did this book is there's been a lot of good counter arguments to that position. By people like Larry Hurtado, the late Larry Hurtado, uh, particularly Richard Baucom, uh, British scholar, Simon Gathercole, a whole bunch of folks have, Richard Hayes, uh, have, I think, resoundingly defeated the idea that Jesus evolved into a deity. Uh, and the, the two ways you can do that would be first, you, you can go to the reconstructed original sources, uh, or, you know, the earliest strata of tradition. So that's Mark and the double tradition shared between Matthew and Luke, and even there, um, there's plenty of evidence, and I can cover it in the book, for uh, divine sonship, preexistence, divine metaphors, whereby Jesus is described in ways that only Yahweh himself is described in the Old Testament. The use of Kyrios as the, the early title of Jesus, borrowing that from Greek-speaking Jewish world, using that as a substitute for both Adonai and Yahweh. There's a bunch of stuff you can go to and show. Yeah, even Mark, uh, who arguably quote-unquote, has the lowest Christology, although some say Luke does. Um, even there, even in Mark, you can find plenty of evidence. There's been a lot of dissertations over the past decade that have made very good arguments that Mark very clearly understands Jesus to be fully divine, even in Mark 1, 1 through 3, uh, where he applies the Isaiah 40 and Malachi 3 passages to Jesus as opposed to God, uh, as they are in the Old Testament. So, uh, a lot of good work has been done sort of obliterating that from a Mark perspective or finding passages in, so you know, quote, unquote, Q. I'm not a fan of Q for a variety of reasons, but I'm um, not anti-Q, but I don't find that to be most persuasive. But you can even find passages in Q, uh, famously the Johannine Thunderbolt in, in Matthew and Luke, that uh, are very clearly in the direction of early high Christology. The other argument beyond sort of going to early gospel sources is going to Paul. Uh, Paul's teaching and most of his epistles predate Mark, um, certainly predate John. And without a doubt, Paul in multiple places, uh, Romans, 1 Corinthians, Philippians, uh, and so forth, lays out undeniable evidence that he held to the full deity of Jesus in the way we later understand it through the creeds. And so that's the other plank of the argument is, is going to Paul, um, Uh, And that that sort of helps cut through some of the dating stuff, because especially like Philippians 2, as a good example, most scholars argue that came, that that was already circulating before Paul. And so we're talking 40s AD-ish, that the sort of Aramaic-speaking Christianity is confessing Jesus to be... Uh, to have equality with God. Like, that's way earlier than Mark, and that's certainly way earlier than John. And so it goes back to the earliest possible days that we see signs of this. And so there really is no evolution at all. It was there from the very beginning.
0: Yeah. In the last chapter of the book, and so I think this is a fitting fitting conclusion to this conversation, uh, you just kind of deal with the, the question, is Jesus just ever explicitly called god in the bible because you know i I think there's a lot of people that are just like it would be so much easier if there was just you know if if we could just say yes and there was a verse you know if we could just quote a verse that jesus is god that would be fine you know short simple just like just like jesus wept let's be that explicit and that strong about it and in the last chapter you do talk about the times about where the word theos uh, or god is used in relation to jesus uh can you just talk a, a bit about a few of those examples some of them are clearer than others some of them are more explicit than others
1: sure and you know someone might wonder why does he do that last because obviously if you just started there you don't need the rest of the book and um in that chapter i, I introduced with that very question and say well theos in the ancient world had different meanings just like god can uh in in modern english you can use it in a love song uh you can have lowercase g and have that refer to something and so i wanted to cover all the other evidence first um because if you never had a passage in the new testament that explicitly predicated the word theos to jesus that doesn't mean you've lost the game because the you know prior five chapters and or at least my attempt through those chapters was to display a massive amount of evidence for identifying Jesus as what we mean by the God of Israel in the second person. Um, and so that's why I saved this chapter more as icing on the cake as opposed to leading with it. Um, but I, I outlined seven, uh, places where, um, Nearly every scholar uh, on the New Testament side would affirm, now whether they agree with it or not is a different issue, but they would at least affirm that grammatically it is true that they are predicating theos to Jesus without any real doubt. Uh, and then I cover five that are more debated, but I sort of lean in the direction that, yeah, it seems to be what's going on here, but there could be manuscript issues or maybe there's some vague grammatical problems that prevent us from being 100% certain. Uh, and so, you, depending on who you read, some of them may include some of these five in the list, others may not, and so that 's why I sort of carved them out and say okay here 's five additional ones where it 's plausible that they 're doing it, but uh there may be a reason to give us pause, but the other seven there 's a few in john, then there 's one in Titus, uh one in first John, and uh one in second peter where um and Hebrews one eight uh where there 's uh, undeniable evidence that they are indeed calling him theos. Um and and so I, I think, you know, I'll lay out the evidence as briefly as I can there. Um, but, again, it's it's meant to be the cherry on top as opposed to the plank of the, ar- the foundation of the argument. Because, again, there's a lot of problems with, call- you know, Satan is called theos by Paul. Angels are sometimes called gods. And so just calling Jesus God is sort of minimally sufficient but it doesn't necessarily prove the Nicene Creed. I think you have to go elsewhere to say this is what they mean by God when they call him God. And that's something that's often missed. Even if Jesus himself said, Hey, I'm God. Uh, that's not necessarily more than what Caesar would say. Uh, certainly some of the Caesars eventually style themselves as Lord and God. Um, and so even if Jesus did that, um, it doesn't necessarily prove what we think it proves. There's a whole bunch of other stuff you have to go through to say, okay, if he did that or if Paul did that, uh, then here's what they mean by that. They mean it's not just, oh, he's a very important person. What they mean by that is, no, he's the creator and the Lord of all things. And so you have to go through that stuff to give meaning to the word theos whenever it is actually used in the New Testament for Jesus. So that's the, the angle I try to take.
0: Mm-hmm. So, uh, Dr. Lanier, I want to thank you for your time on the podcast. Again, the book is Is Jesus Truly God? How the Bible Teaches the Divinity of Christ. And I think a lot of of you that are listening to this, you may – hopefully now that you've listened to the interview, you understand a little more. But I I feel like that you may have thought, oh, yeah, I know the answer. Uh, But this is really going to help you be able to articulate why you believe what you believe. And to understand what you believe in a much deeper way uh, and hopefully bring you closer to Christ, uh, to Jesus, who is himself God. Dr. Lanier, thank you for your time.
1: Yeah, thank you.